My parents took me to church as soon as the hospital released me. I ne- I, for years, I didn't go to church. I was carried into church. As if you've been attending here for a while, it just normally crops up in my conversations. Uh, my parents are missionaries, and uh, they're still missionaries. Uh, they've just celebrated 50 years on the mission field, and three generations now of people in our family that are preaching the gospel. All that to say, I know church. My, my first memories were cl- crawling around in a pew. Uh, I, I once went forward during an altar call as a little boy and, and went sincerely to pray, but then got distracted and tried to remove the shoe of the woman who was kneeling in front of me. <laughs> and my dad put a very quick and frankly, to my small uh, mind, uh, violent end to that. But I've been in church for so long, I've seen in every kind of service, several different countries, and as a friend of mine, a a dear friend in in a small town in Kansas says, uh, ministry, what we're doing here right now, gathering as God's people to hear God's word, it's sacred, and it's also entirely human. All kinds of things can happen in a church service. I've been bored to tears in a church service. You have too if you've been attending church here for a while and listening to me (laughs) preach. You've probably had a Sunday like that, hopefully not too often. I've been terrified and amused. I've laughed out loud. I've been annoyed with the gum popper behind me. I've prayed that they would carry that precious baby that's in the back of the room serenading us all with his song, that they would carry him out or feed him or do whatever is needed with him. I was at a wedding once in rural Mexico that was interrupted by a dog fight in the middle of the ceremony. <laughs> Two dogs came into this little church in this little town and one caught the other by the, no- by the nose and there was just a tremendous racket and we had to work to get the dogs out so that the wedding could resume. I've seen just about everything that could happen in a congregational meeting. And Luke chapter 4 is a story like that. In Luke chapter 4, now you're meeting Jesus full grown. Luke, more than any other gospel writer, takes his time introducing us to the birth and even the child Jesus. In Luke 2.52, for instance, you read that Jesus went home with his parents and there he submitted to them. He obeyed them. He grew in wisdom and in stature with favor, favor with God and man. He's showing you the humanity of Jesus, that the God who was promised also somehow is a man. Jesus is entirely God. His divine nature has never changed and never could, but he has now adopted a human nature, and he is an ordinary human being, and that is because he's entering our experience and he's doing everything we in our sinfulness and rebellion will not and cannot do, including obeying his parents as a 12-year-old boy. That's a picture of the gospel right there because a 12-year-old has not yet been born aside from Jesus who obeys his parents all the time. He loved his father and obeyed him all the way through in every detail, including in his childhood when he was developed enough as a boy to understand that he was a child in a family under the authority of parents, he obeyed them. That's the first two, God, first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke. But by the time we come to Luke chapter 4, Jesus is a man. 
And he has actually gone out into the wilderness alone and fasted for 40 days and quite literally met the devil who tempted him to step off the path that the Father had crafted for him and instructed him to follow for our salvation. The devil even uses scripture and twists it and changes it, dilutes its meaning, invites Jesus to another path that detours and misses the cross. Jesus will have nothing to do with it. So we read in Luke chapter 4, After that temptation, I read from verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. How's the ministry going? It's going well. For those of you who like to take notes, you can. There aren't any slides this morning. I just want you to hear the story. I want you to sit with Jesus in the congregation. Verse 16. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. That childhood lived out in Nazareth. The place I once read was probably not much bigger in the time of Jesus than the campus of our church. Hard to say for sure, but this is only a small handful of people. They all know each other. They all remember Jesus. They remember him being raised by Joseph and learning the carpenter and the mason's trade that his father practiced. They remember Jesus being an excellent son and an excellent assistant to his father as the young apprentice learning the family trade. They remember that he cut a board straight. Then he finished a job on time. That the family of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, didn't overcharge. Now he's back home. And he's going to church. He's going to the congregation, to the synagogue. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. There's a lot in the Bible if you'll slow down. Jesus had the weekly habit of meeting with God's people and hearing God's word. Did you catch that? He went to God's people to hear the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and Luke says, as was his custom. Hang on to that, Christian. We live in an age after all this pandemic where virtual attendance will be normalized as sufficient. And it's not. It's a good compliment. It's a good help. It's It's a good resource. It is a lousy substitute permanently for what we're doing here this morning which is to worship, to gather, to encourage one another. Not everybody here knows everybody else, not even me. But all of you need a few friends for the journey. And Jesus knew that as the Son of God, He is obeying God in every respect, including the hearing, the reading, and in His case today, the explaining of God's Word. Look, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. He's reading from Isaiah 61, and he's going to use the teacher's gift to intersperse one single phrase, also from Isaiah 58, verse 6. Jesus reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What do you think of the reading? Had you been sitting there, would that have given you hope? Let's remember where we are. Let's review the story. Where are we right now, sitting with this congregation? We're in Nazareth, in the nation of? Which is entirely in charge of their own affairs, right? Leading the world, captain of their own destiny. Is that true? No. Roman soldiers are only a hundred yards away, it feels like, all the time. In fact, it's entirely likely later in the Gospel of Luke you will meet a Roman centurion who is in desperate need and leaders from the Jewish community come to Jesus and say, please do this healing for him. He's a good man. He built us a synagogue. Maybe this one. Wherever the Jews are, they are continually reminded that they're in trouble. Pagans, pagan occupiers, pagan invaders, who were there only because of their superior military force, occupy their land, have changed their customs. Yes, they're free to worship, but only because it serves Rome politically. At any point, any one of these people going home from the Sabbath in the observance of the law, intending it to be, as Moses intended, a day of rest, could be compelled by any one of these soldiers to carry his rucksack a mile. That's why Jesus said, if someone compels you to go a mile, what will you do? You as a Christian, you'll go too. You'll say, no, sir, I'll go further with you. I'd like to help you. That will be a testimony to the pagans. Jesus is different. Jesus is countercultural. Jesus will upset you. Are you ready? All of this is happening in the synagogue of Nazareth. And Jesus opens the scroll of the prophet Isaiah written 700 years earlier. 700 years before his lifetime and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed who proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There's a lot here. Jesus is saying, I am particularly anointed by the Spirit of God to do what I'm about to do. So far, he's just reading. He's reading something from 700 years earlier, but in verse 20 it says, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now that would be somewhat normal after someone is, has done, is done reading the scriptures, but Luke wants you to see more. Luke wants you to see this little crowd looking at Jesus, asking themselves, what next? And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You see, what was customary from someone who was capable in doing so was not only for the scriptures to be read, but to do what I'm trying to do now, which is to have the scriptures explained. 
And Jesus takes the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, if you'll retreat with me just a little bit in the text and see exactly what he read. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's prophetic language. I'm not an ordinary attendee at the synagogue. I'm telling you, what I just read to you has been fulfilled right here in front of you. And the first thing you need to know is that the Spirit of God, God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit, he's on me. And the reason is he's anointed me. He set me aside and empowered me for ministry. Here's what Jesus does to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me. In other words, I'm not here under my own authority. I am a prophet who has been sent. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. And this is different, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. I don't know if you notice the verbs. When you're reading the Bible, what's my number one tip? Slow down. Jesus says, I'm here to proclaim. I'm here to proclaim. And I'm here to set people free. See, I can proclaim freedom but I can't give it to you. Big difference. A lot of people who love freedom down through the centuries across the empires who spoke of freedom and were immediately murdered for their trouble. Jesus is here to not only explain and proclaim and announce miraculous things like the poor being lifted up, like the captives being set free, like the blind receiving their sight. He's actually the one who can do it. That's the difference. Every religion in the world tells you what to do. The gospel announces what Jesus has already done. There's a world of difference. This isn't a, if you're new to church, this isn't a try harder message. This is a trust more message. This is a repent of your sins and your inability. Recognize your poverty, your blindness, your oppression, your captivity, because the one who can proclaim liberty and restoration has already come. And he didn't only come to proclaim it, he came to do it. And he's done with the reading and he rolls the scroll back up. Everybody's watching. And he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. There's one more detail that you need to remember as we move forward in the story. Because for all the times Jesus went to church, and when I think back of all the crazy things that have happened when I went to a congregational meeting, something extraordinary is about to happen. Jesus finished the reading, if you'll look with me again at what he read in verse 19. To set at liberty those who were oppressed, who proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. And the whole message, the whole message is hope. The whole message is salvation. The whole message is restoration and freedom and goodness. But I want you to hear from Isaiah 61 the phrase that Jesus didn't read. Because he cut the reading off at a very specific point. You don't have to look there, but I'm reading from Isaiah 61 to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who were bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's where Jesus ended the reading. Listen, Isaiah 61 verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Why didn't he read it? 
because that's not why he came this time. Always remember this as you celebrate the birth of Jesus. The birth of Jesus, the first coming of Jesus, has wrapped up in the same story, the promise of his return. Advent looks forward not only to his birth, but also to his return. But Jesus today, to this crowd, has a message of entire hope. And maybe, maybe that was part of the problem and led to what happened next. Back in Luke chapter 4, it says in verse 22, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. How's the Saturday going? How's the ministry going so far? What do you think? This is the best day we've ever chosen to go to synagogue. Someone who has been touring through the countryside, preaching in the synagogues, showing the signs and the power of God, has come back to our hometown. He's opened the scriptures and explained them to us, and he said he's the one. And everybody's watching. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Now there's a lot here if you can sit in the synagogue and listen. It's a small town of no particular importance. It would be unfair to call it a backwater, but it doesn't have a stellar reputation. Nobody believes that anything good can come out of this little town. Nazareth is a place that you're from or a place that you end up, but it's nowhere anybody's going. It's not anything to be proud of. It's part of Israel, but it's just ordinary working people. No particular importance, no particular education. There are no great rabbis there. The few young boys who have flair and talent for understanding the written word of God, they've escaped Nazareth, and they're far from this hometown. And something happens in this crowd because they say, is not this Joseph's son? And nobody can read a crowd like Jesus. When we're trying to teach young pastors how to preach, we try to teach them to read two things at once, God's word and God's people while they preach it to them. Someday I'm going to put a GoPro on my head and film you while I'm preaching. So that you can see all that I see. It is a spectacle. And sometimes if it seems like I've lost my place, it's you. <laughs> Something has happened in the back of the room that diverted my attention from God's word onto one of God's people. Jesus is the perfect human being. A sinless human nature. He's eternally always and always will be God the Son. He can read the room. He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. What's Jesus telling them? I feel your resistance. Now that I've read the scriptures to you and began to explain them to you, I see you moving from admiration 
and awe to resistance. I hear you and I see you elbowing each other and saying, isn't this Joe's boy? Where'd he go to school anyway? What gives him the right? He read the scriptures well enough, but now he's actually going to tell us that he, little Yeshua, is the fulfillment of what the prophet said 700 years ago? That boy, I saw him skin his knee. I saw him cry when he was hungry. I changed his diapers when his mother was sick. I don't believe it. And Jesus reads the room. He reads the crowd. And he says to them, I know what you're thinking. He quotes a proverb, physician, heal yourself. What you've heard, we've heard you do at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. In other words, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, prove it. And not only that, if you think very carefully through that proverb, physician, heal yourself, what are they actually saying? Something wrong with you, boy. You're sick. You're not right in the head. There's something wrong with your heart. Jesus understands it. He expects it. Verse 24, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but in truth I tell you. Now watch, because things are going to get, things are going to get ballistic now. In truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. If you're not familiar with the story, this happened centuries earlier. Israel was at its spiritual low point. It was consumed by idolatry and only a few faithful prophets faithfully pointed back to God. They had been so awful that God in a desert climate closed the sky over them and they endured drought and famine for how long does it say? Verse 25, three and a half years. In truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them. None of the Israelites. People are starving. People are dying of thirst. One of the few men who knew and served God was sent to none of the widows of Israel, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, another nation, another tribe, another people. Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, his successor, still a spiritual low point, and none of them was cleansed. The land of Israel was filled with leprous people, Jesus says, but none of them was cleansed, but only who? Naaman the? The what now? Their enemies. If you're unfamiliar with the stories, you may have missed the point. Here's what Jesus is saying. I am the one who fulfills this scripture, and I'm telling you it's happening right here. 
As you sit and listen to God's word, I'm telling you that a promise that God made 700 years ago is being fulfilled right in front of you. I'm the one. The spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me. He has set me aside, not only to proclaim miraculous deliverance and forgiveness, but to actually give it to people. I don't just announce it, I do it. This is who I am. This is what's happening now. It's a whole new day. A whole new age is being opened up. As the poor in Israel looked in the land in the law of Moses to the year of Jubilee, where all debts were forgiven, I'm the one that brings Jubilee. I'm the one that brings cancellation of debts, absolute forgiveness, forgiveness from prison, miraculous things like recovery of sight to the blind, both physically and spiritually. I'm the one who can do that. And they started to say, what a sermon. And then they said, wait a second. Isn't this Joe's boy? And Jesus said, I know what you're thinking. I know you're telling me to prove it, and I know you're thinking that there's something wrong with me, but I want to remind you, at the lowest point in our nation's history, God sent two of his chosen prophets, not to his rebellious people, but to what you consider dirty Gentiles, enemies of our people, far from him. And the prophets did for them what they did not do for Israel. How are they going to take it? When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could do what? Throw him on the cliff. This is not an out of control mob. This is a religious execution for blasphemy. People were permitted in the tradition and the teaching of the Pharisees in those days to kill someone who was a great offense to God without trial. And that's what happened in the synagogue in Nazareth when Jesus came to his hometown for the first time to explain who he was, why he had come, and what he was going to do. Now what does this have to do with us? Because you've come to a meeting too. And ideally, supposedly, I'm reasonably sure for at least most of you, you're more open-hearted to the Word of God and to the Son of God than the people who heard the Word of God explained to them in Nazareth. Why is this here? Can I look back at this story and give you some cautions about responding to Jesus? Let me ask you three questions from what we've just read. Do you think you perhaps could be overly familiar with Jesus? And that the claims he makes no longer move you to obedience. Do you think you are willing to accept his authority in everything that he says and obey him without conditions or rebuttals? You see, in his first coming, Jesus cut off the reading in Isaiah purposefully. He said in Luke chapter 4, if you look carefully with me, in verse 19, that he had come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The very next phrase in the passage he read when he walked the earth is the vengeance of our God. Christian, do you agree that Jesus has the right to judge the earth? 
There's a reason evil is still among us. There's a reason why, while Christmas lights encircle so many homes and Christmas trees shine from every window, there will be a different kind of light circulating through every American city and town. They're red and blue lights and they belong to police officers and ambulances. And sometimes the Christmas tree will be illuminated by first responders. And celebrations will be punctuated by shots of, by gunshots and by screams of despair. Why is that? Because the world is still under the thrall of sin and rebellion before God. In his first coming, Jesus announced that he would return someday to judge the earth. And I'm asking you, as a supposed disciple of Jesus, if you are a disciple of Jesus, as I am and as I'm trying to be, do you fully accept his authority not only to save, but also to judge? If you don't, you may sit closer to the people in the synagogue of Nazareth than you actually believe. The moment he said something they didn't like, that did not fit their worldview, they rose where they had been listening and admiring. They rose to murder him. And here's a very hard question for Christians in 21st century, hyper-politicized, hyper-divisive America. Do you really believe that there's anybody beyond Jesus' favor that he cannot, will not, or should not save? You see, the idea that the widow of Zarephath and that the military officer of the Syrians alone would be favored by God with food in the case of the widow and healing in the case of the army officer, that ran a dagger right through the heart of proud nationalistic Israel. They didn't want their enemies saved. They wanted them destroyed. They wanted the armies of Syria and every other army that ever did oppose them or ever would annihilated in front of them. They wanted to dance on the graves of the people who opposed them. They wanted people who served false gods and embraced false worldviews to actually starve while they feasted. And if we're not very careful as disciples of Jesus in the 21st century, as our nation becomes increasingly hostile to Christ, that we Christians who claim to know him and love him will not become increasingly hostile to the people who don't know him. If they must oppose Jesus... Let them. But you can't stop believing for a moment that they are outside of the grace of God. You can't stop believing for a moment that the grace that Jesus is and the, Jesus, the grace that Jesus proclaims and the grace that Jesus gives is their hope and that you are a messenger sent to them. See, what offended the Israelites is while they starved and died of leprosy, God specifically sent prophets to far from him people, people that were wildly undeserving. Guess who Jesus has sent now before he returns? Who did Jesus send? You. He sent all of us, remember? At the end of the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 24, the only two references in all of Luke's Gospel where Jesus explains that Scripture is being fulfilled, in Luke 4, you just read it, in Luke 24, he says to his disciples, this Gospel has to be preached in every nation. 
The entire gospel of Luke is the life of Christ fulfilling the prophecies and the will of the Father who sent Him. Now He is sending you. You can't afford to get sour and bitter. You can't afford to hunker down and hate anybody. You have to maintain your devotion to Jesus. You have to maintain your separation from things that offend him and disappoint him, but you can't in any of that afford to do what God refuses to do and hate people before the time of judgment. God is not willing that any should perish, Peter explained, but that everyone should come to repentance. The very end of the story in Luke chapter 4, They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. One of the tantalizing things about the Gospels is they report the most extraordinary miracles in the most understated language. Dozens of people probably with shouts To those few who had not attended the synagogue, hundreds of people probably gathered to make sure that Jesus got up to the top of the hill. You can visit that hill in modern day Nazareth to this day. You can see the hill that had to be the place where they tried to throw him down to his death. But then suddenly, from the angry murderous mob who is about to watch a living man who has just opened God's word to them turn into a corpse as he goes shattering his body down a cliff. Luke simply reports, he went away. Why is that? It was not his time, and it wasn't the right hill. Soon enough, imperial forces will come again. Both religious and political forces, the hated Romans that these Jews in the synagogue at Nazareth so despised, they will come too. They will bring weapons and torches. And this time, for love of you, for love of me, they will meet no resistance and there will be no escape and no evasion. Jesus will willingly give himself over taking pains miraculously to heal even in that moment, to allow his disciples to escape, and then he will go speaking not a word in his defense to submit himself to an unjust authority who will mock him before he puts him to death, and he will die on a cross on a different hill outside of the city of Jerusalem. And he did that all for you. And that's your Savior. And that's what this season begins to remind us of. The baby boy who was cradled by a manger in Bethlehem grew up and met with God's people to explain God's word clearly to them and to open up their understanding so that they would know that no one was beyond God's love and they did not stand in judgment of anyone. And most of all, that he was the actual good news that God had promised. But along with that promise, give this warning that Jesus is only good news for people who agree they need it. If you do not believe that you need good news, if you believe that you see well enough already, that you're oppressed by no one, that you are already spiritually free, and that Jesus doesn't really need to help you, 
You'll sit with the crowd in Nazareth in your self-righteousness rather than take his righteousness upon you and receive every good thing he ever promised you. So if you've been hanging around Jesus and investigating his claims, this is my my heartfelt appeal from me to you from a formerly blind man who was dying spiritually to tell you he really is the good news. Please believe and trust him today. Give up on yourself and your own self-determination and your own plan and trust him as Savior today before you celebrate his birth one more year. And Christian, if you already know him and you already love him, make sure that when you hear his word, his authority his direction, that you don't stand above and outside of it by narrowing the scope of God's love to people who are very much like you. If you've put anyone outside the grace of God, hear Jesus speaking that he came precisely to the blind. He came precisely to free the captive. He knows that people are oppressed and weighed down and burdened with all kinds of sin and all kinds of foolishness. That's why he came to set them free. That's what he did for you. Please do not narrow that offer to anybody. Proclaim it in his name this Christmas. Don't give up on anybody. Because I know when we tell you, invite your friends and family, some of you are already thinking of who you dare not invite because Jesus can't do anything for them. They don't listen. They don't care. What if instead you had the courageous faith of Jesus himself and you just gave them the word and you let the reaction be between them and the Lord because Jesus is absolutely good news, but only to people who agree they need it. Let's pray together. I'm going to speak now quickly to those of you who are not entirely sure that Jesus has forgiven and saved you. If you're, if you want to be saved, you want to be forgiven, you want to be sure that you have eternal life, but you're not sure, you're still working on it. You're still wondering, could I invite you right now to make sure to say to Jesus humbly, I heard what you said and I believe you and I'm trusting you and obeying you as my savior right now. I'm turning away from my sin. I'm turning myself over to you. There's no magic words. There's just one heart humbling itself before the savior and the son of God. If you'll do that, he will absolutely welcome you. Jesus said, if anyone will come to me, I will by no means cast him out. If you do that this morning, pray in your own words, confess your own sins, tell Jesus that you want him to be your savior. You have his assurance, not mine, his assurance that he'll save you. He'll give you the good news he is. He'll give you himself. And Christian, have you, you still under his authority? You agree that he can not only save, but also judge? Have you narrowed the scope of his love? Are there people, individuals, are there whole groups that you've already consigned to judgment even before he does? If that's true, tell him you're sorry. Agree with him that you can't save them, but he can. And that you'll pray. And that you'll tell people about him 
so that he can do what he does.